Blog Talk Radio.
So this is the time when we learn everything. You know, I don't know if it's a short time and then we start forgetting it again or whatever, but this is that time. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to an End Time Tribune Media special episode where we're going to be going into more details concerning the RAM and where we are currently sitting within this uh, prophetic timeline moving forward from that pivot point of 1979, that 2,300 years after the death of Alexander the Great. Matthew, do I have you here, and uh, why don't you jump in and sort of start leading this in while I get a few things arranged here, folks, so you know we had to reschedule the episode because Windows 10 did a nice update, and everything is acting all kinds of goofy, so go ahead, Matthew. Well, we always have little moments of uh, entertainment, ladies and gentlemen. I just woke up. Um this new job is putting me to task. Um, I've been pushed farther physically, mentally, and spiritually than I ever, ever have been before. So I wake up and just jump on, and Brian is frustrated because he not only scheduled the episode, he can't get it to start. And uh, so pretty interesting stuff. But ladies and gentlemen, uh, Brian's opening comments should be quite chilling to you. The angel told Daniel for 2,300. And when we look to the timelines and realize that things really have turned into chaos, just like what happened when he died. Completely unexpected. He died in Babylon. And it amazes me how very few, even academics, know that. That no, Alexander didn't die here or there. He died in the city of Babylon. Of course, when he did, chaos ensued. Before I went to sleep today, Brian and I had a conversation about what that could mean. Consider this, ladies and gentlemen, that if you look back to what happened in 2016... It begins to be quite chilling as you realize that Brian and I did a broadcast or two on Gulan, everything that was happening in Turkey. When we go to the major marker of 1979, oh my goodness, that's when everything started. The sea began to be churning. You know, ladies and gentlemen, consider this, that 
what really has ensued since the United States Embassy in Israel incident happened is everybody has turned against Israel. <clears throat> it has everybody in the Middle East absolutely fuming. That's all it's managed to accomplish. Iran does a missile barrage into the beautiful land, and guess what the United States does? Absolutely nothing. The whole reason for this turmoil, POTUS does not even go to attend the ceremony when he's the one that really caused all the chaos. Now, one thing that we can't have is for the Shia and the Sunni to get together. However, when you start looking at the political heads of state for those two religions, you begin to see things that aren't too good, ladies and gentlemen. Because behind the scenes, they're obviously starting to hook up. In any event, realize this. <clears throat> what Alexander done better than anybody is this one thing. His soldiers would invade, they would take wives, and then they would give wives. They would recruit from the people they just conquered and move on. Now, that completely blows everybody away when they realize that, that Alexander would take the men he had just conquered, set up good relations with them, and then they would join his army to conquer those people's neighbors. And he did this to perfection. Because Alexander had them convinced that he was just not out for wanton bloodshed. That's not what he was doing. He was doing something else altogether different. Hence why he showed up at Jerusalem. And of course the priest let him walk right in. Not only that, they promised him that from that point forward, they would name their sons Alexander after him, which endures to this very day. This is why Jews across the globe are named Alexander. Now, I just had a very interesting question come my way. And to be quite honest with you, I don't know how the person involved had the wherewithal to even ask me the question, but they asked me about the question of one of the churches, just one, Thessalonica. And I marveled, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, that only comes from one place, only one person, Alexander's sister. That's right. It was Alexander's dad that came up with that name and named his daughter that. So these events may be playing out right before our eyes, and nobody even has the wherewithal to understand what's going on. Now, with that in mind, we better take a serious gander at what's ensued since 2016. And we better come to grips with what is to come, ladies and gentlemen. You know... Me and a fellow shepherd got to talking a few days ago. They needed some critical data in order to 
continue with their studies, with their flock. They asked me a question that, well, I haven't been asked that question for over 20 years. But they asked the one question that was critical to really... Everything Brian and I have to cover in our next WI2C radio as we move forward through the book of Revelation. Because many people don't realize that God plainly tells you what happens. That infamous moment when there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. Oh, he's already come right out and told you where he was at. And when I shared that, literal shock set in. When they realized it, I said, here, let me do it. I didn't tell them which chapter or verses I was reading from, and I read a little from Revelation, and I read a little from this chapter, and just, but he didn't know. And after I was done, I said, now tell me what chapter and verse I was reading from, and he had trouble answering because he said, wait a minute, read that again? What did you say? Because I'd just taken one chapter and put it right in the right place and kept reading, and he realized that Ladies and gentlemen, it fit right into the text. It was supposed to go there the whole time. But he had never stopped to consider that when he was reading this minor prophet in the right place, it literally come right out and told you exactly what God was going to do. So with that in mind, we need to really come to grips with what really happened because this is what God really says. That he chases after what has been. That's what God himself says. And it always amazes me how due to weapons of mass distraction, due to the implementation of cunningly devised fables, no one is able to gather their thoughts and just plainly read the text and just believe it. I had a terrible conversation with my daughter yesterday. And she explained to me, well, Daddy, their faith is in the rapture. It's not in Jesus. It's not in their salvation. Their mind calculates that's what salvation is, is escaping to paradise. And if that's not the way it's going to be, they really never wanted anything to do with it. That is a quite disturbing thought. With that in mind, Brian, back to you. Well, this, uh, you know, that's, uh, where do we start with this? I mean, that's uh, inadvertently a huge portion of things here is that so many pieces of what has been passed down throughout time through varied eschatological circles theological circles, academic circles, has completely muddied the waters. And, you know, folks, for the listeners that have been out there listening to us since all of this began, when Matthew began in 2010, when I jumped into the middle of this in late 2010, 2011, and started moving forward, that's what we have tried to undo is all of the fiction. And, you know, along the way, We've actually learned a great deal ourselves, and we continue to learn and understand new things that we didn't understand before. Now, the previous program, 
where we started discussing the ram with two horns itself. You know, I had made a discovery earlier in that week concerning Ophir and its etymology, etymological, I guess is how you would try to say that, closeness to the word for par, pars, Percy, fars, however you want to break it down in the English tongue, Persian. You know, that's only, that is the longer horn of the two that comes up. Obviously, we have the Medes, which we'll tackle a little bit more in depth at a later time because they're a lot easier to forward their historical documentation. But this has been the biggest mystery all throughout time. Who in the world are these Persians? You know, if you try to ascertain this from, for instance, the Greek text or even try to pull things together from the Greek mythology to uh, lock it in and identify it, you're just going to spin in circles. And that's why it's been so very key critical with all of this new um, work that's coming forth from different scholars and academics in these fields. You have some from French people, some of the people working in Iran that have been going through all of this material and trying to bring some light onto this because, you know, folks, you have to understand that a vast majority of these Persian texts were destroyed most specifically. There's a lot of them that were destroyed at the time of Alexander the Great when they came in. You know, I would keep this as a side note in the back of your head as well because we will be getting to this when we start going more into the he-goat and that isochronal representation. Um, When Alexander the Great showed up there, folks, you need to take very careful note of the fact that He found Cyrus the Great's tomb in disarray, which was being guarded by those magi, or as I have referred to them, they would be the uh, false magi, because that set of magi was set up to run in the way that a theocratic-style regime, just like we have going on in Iran right now, ever since the 1978-1979 Iranian Revolution. The easiest way would be to break it down would be such as how the mullahs are operating things. That was their role inside of ancient when they started coming prominently to the forefront at the time of Darius the Great. Now, everybody, you need to remember that there was an event that they will refer to as Magiphonia, and you can find all kinds of documentation in the Greek text. You have stuff that comes into varied pieces within the Bison inscription, And even um, Josephus makes mention of this event as well, where when Darius the Great himself seized that throne, he came in and he slaughtered the rightful magi that would have been the magi that were in Chaldean Babylon at the time of Daniel. So he therefore tried to exterminate that line. And this becomes important to a degree in understanding what we've had happen in Iran since 1979. Now, as I stated, Alexander the Great came in, and because of the fact of how they had completely disrespected Cyrus the Great's tomb, because he found it in absolute disarray, well, he went on a killing spree, basically. And, you know, as some commentators pointed out, you would almost consider that a war crime in today's day and age. He slaughtered those magi because of what they had done. Knowing Alexander the Great... I have suspicions he knew a little bit more than has made it into our varied accounts that have been passed down through history. Because, of course, you have a Roman account that was written 300 years after, or 400 years after the fact off the top of my head, and a Greek account 
that was written 300 years after the fact. So the whole life of Alexander the Great himself has had to be re-pieced together from varied sources, not to even mention the work that's been done by a few people who go out and actually trace his steps and get to the bottom of these things. <clears throat> so there's still mysteries that are being solved in this equation as time progresses. So we learn more and more details concerning Alexander. We learn more and more details concerning the Persians and the Medes as well. And this is, just takes, on my part at least, it takes vast amounts of time going through that material, but not to even mention where we have to start wrapping this around, how this plays itself out in these historical repetitions as history repeats itself, just like God's holy word states. So this is where we come to that 1978-1979 threshold. Now, I've stated this before numerous times, that 2,300 years after the death of Alexander the Great, and how did I calculate this? Folks, I took the Hebrew calendar because it runs in continuity. It continues to go forward. We don't get no zeros. We don't end up with the messes of the changes in between the Gregorian and the varied calendars because, you know, folks don't forget on top of it during the Roman Empire before the birth of Christ and even during that time frame, you had the Roman leaders in there were messing with the calendars as well. And that's another huge aspect that is thrown our understanding in the absolute disarray when it is that you sit down and try to lock in the real year for the birth of Christ and the real year for the crucifixion. They've been playing with these calendars for so very long. So if we want something that stays in absolute continuity, you have to convert your dates. For instance, if you're doing a BC date, you have to convert that over to the Hebrew calendar. And then therefore, when you're trying to do an addition or a subtraction number, Using that calendar, you can stay consistent. So for anybody out there that is trying to do date conversions, I just gave you a very large uh, idea as to how I work with these calendars because it's the easiest way to cut out the nonsense and just get those dates to line up exactly where they are. You get a date forward in the future, such as like with 1979, you do that conversion, you're sitting right there. So this is how I came up with this date. No having to worry about the Gregorian change. No having to worry about all the different things Rome did with the calendar. It's all eradicated. Now this is where we start breaking down these events of what transpired here at that 1978-1979 threshold. Everybody, some very key critical things that need to be understood. And Matthew touched... Okay, Matthew, I don't understand what you're talking about here. I just uh, was letting you know I needed to interject something real quick when you have a pause. Oh, just go for it. That's fine. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you understood what Brian just said. Now, let me riddle you. Brian just gave a magnificent statement about the tale of the Magi. This is what happened, ladies and gentlemen. Alexander shows up at the great tomb of Cyrus. It's not being properly kept, and Alexander goes on a rampage because, of course, 
if the people would be allowed to do this, they would be allowed to do it to Alexander's own tomb. You have to realize, ladies and gentlemen, that Alexander had been told his whole life this is what he was supposed to do. First, his mother did. His mother was, of course, a priestess. Then he went to the Oracle Delphi. And third, he went to the Sublime Oracle at Egypt. All three priestesses had told him the same exact thing. Now you have to realize, ladies and gentlemen, when did Cyrus rebuild the temple? Don't you understand, ladies and gentlemen? That you have to come to grips with this. That Alexander had already put two and two together about Cyrus in the temple of Jerusalem. If you think that Alexander didn't know about Solomon's temple, you're really quite daft. You really are. If you really think that um, Alexander's mother didn't know about the temple at Jerusalem, the oracle at Delphi, or the sublime oracle in Egypt did not know about Solomon and Solomon's temple at Jerusalem, you really do have historical problems. You really do. Now, like I said, this is what happened. Alexander goes to Tyre. There is the intervention of the silver shields. Nobody knows what happened, but more importantly, nobody really knows how uh, Alexander took Tyre. It was completely impenetrable. How could you do it? It was on a self-standing island. There was no way into it, and yet the Lord our God had told everybody in one of the major prophetic texts of the prophets, uh, that's exactly what he was going to do. And he obviously had done so through the hands of Alexander. Alexander goes straight from Tyre into the beautiful land, shows up at Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, I already made battle plans to take this temple. You see, ladies and gentlemen, you're all thinking that he was thinking to himself, I'm going to take the city. No. No, 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 no. And when Alexander showed up and everybody was in their temple vestules, lined up, ready for him to come in, Alexander must have wondered after the Lord his God. Now we can understand how the Magi played a part in, well, the Annunciation, whether you like it or not. What I'm talking about is absolutely historical fact. So you need to question yourself in your mind. Why would Alexander get so upset that Cyrus's tomb had not been properly kept? Oh, if you thought it didn't have anything to do with his knowledge and the things he must have discussed. Ladies and gentlemen, what do you think was the very first thing that Alexander asked? Well, how did this temple get built? Who built it? And if you don't think that the priest told him everything he wanted to know, with that in mind, he stepped forward. Ladies and gentlemen, why do you think he went to Babylon anyway? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a whole lot deeper and a whole lot more complex than you may have a for now thought. The other day I 
went and did some research on our contemporaries, guess what? No one anywhere that was babbling about this present POTUS being similar to Cyrus had any knowledge of the things I just described. They had no idea that Alexander showed up at Cyrus's tomb and went on a rampage because it had not been properly kept up. It had not been maintained. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it was supposed to be on display much like, uh, well, go to Sicily, to the great temple of Hera, or, well, in our tongue, Hera, the necropolis. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how it should have been being kept up, and it wasn't. And he realized that if it wasn't being done, that they wouldn't keep up Alexander's tomb when he died. Brian, back to you. Well, I'm sort of point out events playing out in modern time real fast because I think we're going to be touching on more of these specific things in tomorrow night's episode on the End Time Tribune. But as that is being brought up, this infamous comparison that is being made to uh, Donald Trump and connecting him to Cyrus the Great, folks, look. When I start hearing something like that, I become highly disturbed. Now, everybody, oh boy. Look, folks, you need to understand Cyrus the Great was, how do you put this, symbolically speaking, an archetype for the coming of Messiah. Like I stated, an archetype, symbolically. Okay, when you begin to look at Cyrus the Great all over in the Bible, you start learning some very, very important things, especially when you start taking things down to the original languages. But this this comparison that they keep making to Donald Trump and Cyrus the Great sets off many alarms. Because we know that we have shadows and silhouettes. Okay, as I brought up in the last program... It states, I believe off the top of my head, it's in Isaiah 44. It states that Cyrus, and a comparison to a shepherd. Now, the major thing I've had going through my head nonstop as of lately is starting where you begin. For instance, I will bring in uh, it's Micah 5, verse 5. All right, folks, because I've, we've talked about it in, in past episodes, but everybody, you need to pay attention to this. This one will be our peace. Okay, in the English, they put a period at the end. And then it moves on to the next portion. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. We have important things that are taking place here currently. I've been just completely and absolutely baffled how a vast majority of those within certain communities, especially in the United States, keep seeing what just happened this week with the move of the embassy to Jerusalem. They keep stating this is the fulfillment of prophecy. But here's the issue. You see, when you understand what their motivations are for everything that's played out here, in the course of this last week, you see, they 
only have specific prophecies in mind that they want fulfilled. And I've pointed this out for months upon months upon months on end, what this dominionist agenda boils down to. Okay, folks, this is not... Well, for me, it's good, I guess I would have to say, because the Lord will be coming back. But these prophecies being fulfilled are not what is commonly being understood out there, because this has focused all eyes upon Israel and not in a good way. And that's like I said, more of these things are going to be brought up coming up tomorrow night. But I mean, one thing I need to point out to everybody isochronally speaking here is because you're going to have to understand this as well, because as we've spoken of here in this series, you begin to realize that there's an, there's a overlaying of isochronal events going back to when the Assyrian came into Israel, uprooted the 10 tribes, going further along when you get down further in history, when Sennacherib comes in with his uh, emissary Rabshakeh and threatens Hezekiah. Everybody remember the fact of after Ahaz's 10 steps played out, everything that happened there with the sun at that point in time. Going forward, Hezekiah opened essentially the keys to the treasury and let the Chaldeans come in. You see, after that, Hezekiah was told that your life will continue on, but you need to know that your descendants are going to be carried away by the Chaldeans due to what just took place here. When you begin to compare what is happening in this current circumstance, when you keep in mind what I just stated, when you keep in mind the fact of the identification of the last days, Babylon, all of a sudden you begin to see things in a new light. And as much as everybody thinks this is the most wonderful thing that has ever taken place, to a degree I would agree it's a wonderful thing, but not in a way that they're thinking it is. This is leading to a place where things are going to explode. To get, remove myself from that line and get back on track here, I need to, uh, for one, I need to draw everybody's attention over here to Daniel 7, verse 4, because there's a specific reason why I use this very specific um, picture that is in the uh, show screen, um, what do they call that, slideshow with the lion standing there. Folks, everybody, you have to understand that one of the other major representations with Media Persia was always the lion. Daniel 7, verse 4, the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, a human mind also given to it. Everybody, this is the one identification that everybody seems to miss and starts building their infamous set of empires from, and they end up with Alexander the Great, for instance, ends up becoming the leopard with four wings of a bird and four heads. 
No. Everybody, and we've already done a major program on this leopard. And you might want to go back and find that episode on the Antonym Tribune and pay very careful attention to what we stated in there because we gave everybody some major keys and hints into understanding what is coming. So I'll get to that to a degree as we move forward to the end of the program. Now, if, you know, once again, we've stated here, uh, you know, we're looking through these varied aspects, of course, when we um, are trying to correct what's going on here with people's understanding of the timeline. So, of course, you know, we discussed last week, or earlier this week, my mistake, the Ulai Canal and the battle with Ashurbanipal, removing the head, basically, of taking down that leader from Ura 2, modern-day Armenia, and also going in and removing the head of the king of Elam. Okay, we've got real-time things playing out in broad daylight there, an exact parallel of that infamous uh, alliance being reformatted because all throughout this week, we have had major dealings going back and forth as far as trade deals are concerned with Armenia and Iran. But to make matters even more complex, we have senators in the United States that are also pushing for money to be sent out to Armenia to assist with their fight against Azerbaijan with Nargamo Karbakh. To break this down and keep it simple, folks, we have people working in the United States government that are setting things in motion to betray Israel where they Armenians and the Azerbaijanis look as if they're about ready to go into full-scale war again. By doing this, this therefore cuts off that two-thirds of Israel's oil that they are getting from Azerbaijan. So this is major, and this is playing out in real time, folks. It's not make-believe. We have a major isochronal event is transpiring in front of our eyes. But this is where we have to go backwards now. Because in 1979, everybody, you need to understand how key critical those events were in deleting where we've showed up at today. Now, if everybody remembers when you go backwards in time prior to 1979, you had Reza Shah uh, Pahlavi was the ruler over the top of Iran. Now, many of the reports say that he is essentially ruling like a dictator. People in Iran were not too pleased with him either. At, in due course, he started going along and basically did a push forward to nationalize the oil there. Now, we've had complex things, obviously, had played out since the Yom Kippur War in 1973 when Saudi Arabia completely threw the gauntlet down and said, we've had it, the OPEC cartel formed, things have spiraled out of control ever since because they basically, on top of it, because of America's rather late assistance, not to even mention the fighting that had to get done to actually get that assistance there. Much longer story, let's just say America was not really too keen on helping out Israel at that point in time, and they had to sneak, essentially. Some folks had to work in the background to even get assistance out there to Israel before it was too late during the Yom Kippur War. And what that caused in turn, obviously, is Saudi Arabia put down a massive blockade, got extremely ticked off 
about the fact that America had assisted Israel in that, and you obviously had oil prices skyrocketed, all of what happened with OPEC, and of course we move forward with things that have happened in history concerning that. But another important thing to take note of here with uh, Reza Shah is the fact that on top of it, while he was ruling, he puts together this really strange little uh, gathering and exonerates and honors Cyrus the Great, trying to even bring a comparison between himself and Cyrus the Great. Now, you can go out there and you can find this in varied historical documentaries and see it with your own eyes. It is, it's enough to haunt you when you understand that, as I stated before, you're going to have shadows and silhouettes. You know, he was a Western set-up leader that was ruling over Iran. Obviously, once he came along to nationalize that oil, as we've discussed before, there's many rumors out there that certain intelligence groups between Britain and even obviously when you had the Ayatollah Khomeini himself who was in France, you also possibly had United States interference to remove Reza Shah. I have questions concerning one stream of data on that, and this is where I've really gotten down to getting into these history books and started sort of... uh, we're going over some of these details because that's one stream of data. I don't know what the other stream of data has to say. But what we do know is uh, when that Iranian revolution broke out, now obviously you had a group of students that stormed through. There was all kinds of chaos in the streets. You had the hostage situation that happened under Carter where on top of it, you know, as I told Matthew last night, when we had Ahmadinejad in power as the president over Iran, obviously things were getting very tense at that stage. And we reported on many of those details since I had come in from 2011 on forward. We had touched on many of those topics that were happening late in breaking news. You have to remember that Ahmadinejad was part of that initial hostage crisis. He was grouped in with those students he was well, he held responsibility in the actions that played out during that time now since we had this big set of protests that broke out here in January well Aminadinejad has gotten to the point where he's stating that they have gone too far right now in Iran that things are completely have escalated to the point of being far surpassing out of control In other words, that wasn't what he signed up for. Now, when you move this forward, everybody, you have to understand that, for one, when the Iranian Revolution broke out in 1979, this revolution was ignited within the Islamic world that caused a just major effect all the way across these very groups. Now, I've spoken before, if you want to take some of the details to get from the 1800s where the British and then later the Americans started uh, really deeply trying to work with these different groups. For instance, the big, big one that you're going to find everywhere in this mix is the Muslim Brotherhood. That, therefore, means you have to deeply understand their foundations, their beginnings, and how they play into this. 
Now, there's a book that I've read a fair amount of that's called Devil's Game by Robert Dreyfus. This will help lay the foundation. I would recommend this because of the fact that everything stated in there, I have had confirmed through multiple other reliable sources with material I've gone through here over time over the course of the last couple of years. So this is a decent book. It will give you a great foundation into understanding those details going back further because for a while there, some of the information concerning the foundation of the Muslim Brotherhood was a little bit lacking. Now, to give a brief rundown of events from the 1800s, because, of course, Britain was in trying to foster these elements within these Islamic groups and basically trying to keep their imperialism floating forward. You know, obviously, if we start out going backwards to the time when Britain was really the main key player in the world, you obviously had them down in India, then they moved into Afghanistan and pushing forward. All this ties in. But you had the person that essentially his ideas led to the foundation of the Muslim Brotherhood. He was going all throughout very, very important places in the Middle East that all tie into end-time prophecy, not to even mention. Then you had things move forward with the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, something very important to take note of, folks, is Muslim Brotherhood very early on started connecting with the Grand Mufti of Palestine, who it is documented tell there's no tomorrow, including there's many Israeli sites that continue to bring this forward. He was working with Adolf Hitler in the midst of World War II. You had Ibn Saad, and the House of Saad was doing the same thing. I've talked about the Philby connection, and then later his son ended up becoming a dual agent basically working for the British and working for the communists at the same time. There's so much information out there on that alone that it's unbelievable. You had their elements within Wahhabism that also on top of it got even more uh, influenced by the Nazi ideologies. As Nazi Germany broke up, you had many of them on top of it. They were filtering in with the Islamic people. Some of them there's actually a large number that started to convert to Islam itself. But also take note, they were also behind the founding of a mosque in Munich. You had early on to uh, an attempt to fight the communists after the Bolshevik Revolution. You had people in Nazi Germany that were already trying to make connections with the Muslim groups that were surrounding what, you know, is was the Soviet Union, now modern-day Russia, they were trying to work with these groups already that far back. And then after World War II was completed, they started once again working with these groups and setting up this mosque in Munich. And this mosque in Munich is sort of another major pivot point because as time progressed, obviously you had this major um, important person within the Muslim Brotherhood who ended up in the United States in meetings that Eisenhower ended up attending as well, besides things playing out with the British and the Germans. But this mosque in Munich was where both trade, World Trade Center, the infamous towers that were taken down in, on September 11th of 2001, you had an earlier bombing that happened there 
both of those bombings were planned at this mosque in Munich. You have a continuity that stretches all the way back into this 1800s marker. All of this keeps building. As time further progressed as these ideas between these political ideologies mixing with these varied extreme variants in Islam, as things further progressed, all of a sudden you hit 1979. 1978 and 1979, that Iranian revolution caused a massive ricochet all throughout the Middle East in every direction. At the time of the Iranian revolution, in 1979, there was a major uprising that transpired in the Pakistan, the United States' embassy inside of Pakistan, where a bunch of the students who had been, essentially had been looking at these different streams of Wahhabism and some of the other radical streams of, uh, look, folks, and a lot of the regular Islamic people, they will call all of these streams heretical, as they are. So you need to differentiate these things in your mind quickly and stop calling all Muslims bad. I know not everybody is doing that, but there's a lot of streams out there within these very dominionist groups and even some of the people have gotten so deeply caught up with conspiracy theory and all that garbage. You have to differentiate these things in your mind. And it's crucial that you understand how these threads and these extreme areas got started so that you can, you can differentiate between regular Muslims and these extremist groups. But we had that attack on the embassy in Pakistan at that time, there was the death of a Marine. A whole bunch of things went on. The general, the Pakistani general at the time, was out doing bicycle ride. They didn't even try to intervene. They just assumed that everybody in the United States Embassy in Pakistan was killed. It was just an absolute mess that played out there in Pakistan. Now, the reason on top of it that these students felt empowered to do what they were doing was because of what was happening in Iran. At the same time, in the same window of time, you had in Saudi Arabia, there was a student in their different theological branches. Obviously, like I stated before, Wahhabism is the what Saudi Arabia follows. Well, he had come to the conclusion that he was the Imam Mahdi. What does that mean? It's a return of an Imam Depending on which school of Islam you're looking at, you've got 12 or 7ers. This is all very complex. But nonetheless, he thought that he was this returned Imam, this Mahdi figure. And then, of course, he goes in and he starts trouble at Mecca. And the first day, a few people were killed. The next day, they set things up to look as if they were mourning, bringing a bunch of coffins burials, next thing you know, people are pulling out weapons. They locked down the whole of Mecca and started killing people right and left. Now, the reality of those numbers to this day has still not come forward because, well, Saudi Arabia, obviously, at this stage is, well, I would have to say a little bit embarrassed. Politically speaking, they didn't want the full details of all this information getting out there. Nonetheless, it's a major turning point as well, what happened there. At Mecca. 1978 
we also had the Camp David Accords between Amar Sadat and uh, Begin, the leader in Israel. By 1979, well, it was uh, Camp David, I'm sorry, that was between different leaders. By 1979, we had the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty was signed in Washington, D.C. I believe it was in March off the top of my head around March 24th. Now, that is a very important spot that ties into all this because that, once again, like I stated, that deal was signed with Amwar Sadat. Now, Amwar Sadat was later assassinated by the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood members that were responsible, some of those ended up in a New York mosque in the United States. And folks, the FBI agents that were investigating this, they could not figure out who put him here. The security clearance went so high, it was absolutely ridiculous. And this, um, he was referred to as the blind imam in some circles. He was basically in the films of the people that were captured within the Muslim Brotherhood that were responsible for the assassination of Anwar Sadat. He's there in broad daylight. So these FBI agents were completely, just absolutely stunned that this guy is sitting inside of this mosque that's in New York. You know, and obviously that's where as time progresses, we have to understand what happened during the Afghanistan war. Because 1979 as well, what other major event happened? The Russian-Afghanistan war. We had a string of events that played out between 1978 and 1979, where you had groups inside of uh, Afghanistan that basically rose to power, took the quote-unquote throne that were aligned with communism. And then as time progressed, one leader gets sort of taken out, assassinated. Another communist leader gets set up on that throne. And the big problems that Russia was having is these guys didn't literally understand how their modern variant of communism worked. They were taken literally from the history books, from things that happened with Lenin, happened some of the really bad things that played out. They started mimicking them, and then they just went on a slaughter amongst themselves. Now, inadvertently, in the midst of this, a a rumor started to circulate that this second guy that overthrew the first guy had connections to the CIA, even though they checked into it, and he didn't. But that rumor spread, and Russia finally, after much deliberation as things had been playing out here in a rather, you know, the progression as months went along as they sat back trying to decide what to do, in part, this whole concept and idea that this guy might be a CIA plant caused them to storm across that border into Afghanistan. That right there set another string of events in motion. Now, I've brought up before about Brzezinski, how he stated he goaded um, the Russians across the border. Now, this is what was said out of his own mouth. Now, as I've come to learn in this, uh, another book I picked up here, because I've planned on getting this for a while, and it just went on sale the other day. Um, it's a book called Ghost Wars by Steve Cole, and he just released the second part that deals with all the events from 2001 up to the present day, 
which are also going to be very important in understanding everything that's playing out here. But I've had my eyes on this guy for quite some time, and I caught several interviews and several documentaries this week. This guy is an absolute expert. He has interviewed multiple people within the intelligence communities, people on the ground all over the world as he has brought these details in in this book. And this thing is just absolutely top-notch. I cannot even state enough that, folks, for those of you out there that are interested, this is a good starting point. But this is where things wrap around. Once again, everybody, you have to understand these streams, these ideologies, of all these extremist things that are now playing out in front of our eyes as we speak. So much of this ties back to this Iranian revolution in so many ways beyond what, at first glance, we can understand. And there are things that have been going on behind the scenes with Iran. Some of this stuff has only been declassified here in the last couple of years, where a far larger picture is starting to come into place of how deeply connected Iran has been with these varied Islamic groups that are spread all over the place. Now, paying attention to the news cycles, for instance, we know full well that they have been backing Hamas. This has been going on nonstop in the news cycles. There's been meetings between major players in Hamas going out to Iran and back and forth. We've also seen things going on here since the Sochi peace talk started, since the Astana peace talk started, where Erdogan, who is also known to be associated and aligned with Muslim Brotherhood, a Sunni group, has been in alliance with Iran as well. And there's all kinds of details that have been playing out in broad daylight. For instance, we just had a guy that was um, convicted on charges of basically uh, laundering money for the Iranians during the time of the sanctions because of their alleged nuclear weapons program. This just happened in the last few days that this guy was completely brought up on charges. So we've got these streams of the Sunni. They're connecting with the Shiite. These barriers have been breaking down for far longer than I realized. And this all plays into the string of events that happened in 1979. Now, with this realization that I had earlier in the week with this connection between Ophir finding its actual location and the Persians, when you begin to plot this out on a map and you begin to look at everything, all of a sudden, this whole picture starts unfolding in front of your eyes and everything begins to make sense. Now, another important detail to point out here before I hand this back over to Matthew for a little bit is what happened as far as Islamic nations getting their hands on nuclear weapons. Does everybody remember Pakistan's a nuclear power? Okay, this nuclear program was already moving into motion by the time that Afghanistan and Russian war played out. The man that was behind that nuclear program, I was going to look that name up before we got on here again. He has the last name of Khan. He was out basically trading secrets from this nuclear program. Now, he basically had stolen plans from, I believe it was Belgium off the top of my head. I can't remember the exact spot, which he used to, in turn, start building 
the nuclear weapons program in Pakistan. In the midst of this, on top of it, he started running deals with all kinds of nations. This includes North Korea and even this is where things get a little bit problematic with Iran because there were meetings where he came into Iran. That whole circumstance, as far as Iran obtaining nuclear weapons, is still, this is a tricky one. And yes, as much, we know Netanyahu pulled this same stunt before, but there's details that everybody has to understand with what was captured in those intelligence files just recently here, last January. But to keep this moving along, to at least explain that thread before I finish that thought. Pakistan essentially stated that they were going to be the forefront power that was going to bring nuclear weapons to the Islamic world. And folks, they have nuclear weapons. That was their intent. was their goal. This has played out. And wrap your minds back around to the fact, again, that also during the time of the Achaemenid Empire, Pakistan played a pivotal role in that very large stretch. Okay, so you have this fire that shot across multiple places all at once. At the same time, we had rumblings in Saudi Arabia. Wahhabism starts funneling down, makes its way into Pakistan, starts spreading through Afghanistan. You have the same thing happening from Iran, spreading in the opposite direction at the same time, also affecting everything. As you begin to look at this history from that time forward, you find out that many of these terror groups that are at the forefront right now have long had dealings with Iran in the midst of this. This includes Al-Qaeda. This includes Taliban, who they've been caught in the midst of again here recently. This article just in March 28th, 18, that details how deeply they're becoming involved in Afghanistan with the Taliban. Now, to take that back to the stream I brought up with what happened here recently with Netanyahu's speech that he gave, where it was revealed the big piece we'd always wondered about, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and their connection to this nuclear weapons program. Now, everybody, as I pointed out, Netanyahu had stated that they got a hold of this intelligence through one of their major intelligence campaigns in January when we had the protests were taking place in Iran at the same time. Now, I went through a documentary that was made in 2014 where one of the chief people that was on Netanyahu's staff several years back, at least prior to this documentary being made in 2014, points out something very important about that grouping of assassinations that happened in Iran with Mossad, because this has now been verified since that time that, yes, Mossad was behind those assassinations. He states something very key critical about the intelligence operations that have been taking place in Iran. Everybody remember what I said about that leopard when I state what I'm about to state next. I've been trying to get everybody to see something for a very long time. I've been dropping hints, and that's all I'm going to do because you have to understand it for yourself. He states that they have Israeli intelligence on the ground. They are using the MAK, which is the Mujahideen al-Khalq. They've been labeled as a terrorist organization by many because of what they did during the Iraqi, or, well, during the Iranian Revolution, for instance, they stormed across the border. They started shooting just uh, 
a large number of people died, were injured during them crossing over the border and doing what they did. During the Iraqi-Iranian war, on top of it, they sided with Iraq and fought against the Iranians. And there's been other varied events that have happened until recently they were labeled as a terrorist organization. Now, John Bolton and his strategies on top of it, he has been working heavily with Mujahideen e Kalk, M.E.K., for quite some time and has even suggested that be used as an element to bring about some form of regime change. This is all sort of a touchy topic right now with the deliberation that's going on in the United States. Just the other day, they had a 200-nation grouping of a coalition trying to look at ways to deal with Iran that was similar to how they took out, um, how they cleared out Mosul with Islamic State with the battle for Mosul, a.k.a. Nineveh, that happened a while back. This is, they're having these talks as we speak, and they're thinking about going about things in the same way. That means, it means what it means. We'll touch more on that tomorrow, I think. But on top of it, now going back through, as this man who worked under Netanyahu stated, you had Israeli intelligence. You had the Mujahideen e MEK, has also been trained by the Israelis working in this intelligence operation as well. And the Kurdish people have also been trained and are working in this intelligence operation because they are able to move in and out quite easily because, well, a large number of them speak the native language there. So they are not even noticed in this operation. So we have a three-pronged intelligence grouping working here. And folks, there's something I need to point out quickly before I hand it back over as well. There's a reason that Steve Cole named this book what he did, Ghost Wars. Because these Wars that have been taking place even since 1979, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with ghosts. We're dealing with, and the intelligence circles, they'll refer to them as spooks. You're dealing with multiple variables, multiple nations, all with their own agendas that are working covertly behind the scenes, pushing things in multiple directions. This, therefore, makes this one big jumbled that at times is very difficult to understand. Let me hand it back over to you for a bit here, Matthew. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let me throw a little thing in here. I've been doing the same thing myself here lately, throwing out little tidbits. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, let's, let's consider something, shall we? God does things through shadows and silhouettes because, okay, look at it like this. Ladies and gentlemen, time is like a horse race, okay? And a spectator, no matter where he's setting at around the track, he sees either a shadow or a silhouette, all perspective, to his vantage point as to where the horses lie. Because sometimes they're going to the left and other times they're going to the right. Sometimes they're heading toward him, sometimes they're going away from him. This is the best way to describe the riders themselves in time. When you have a vantage point, everything becomes a shadow and or a silhouette. So when we think about this, 
I have, as of late, been pointing out to people the 100th parallel and its shift. This is why I've been bringing that up because <clears throat> here as of late, I've been reminded of it, the vast amount of work I did before I relocated here where I'm presently at. And my work with the geologist at a major university where I used to live, behind the scenes. You need to understand that historically it's always been known that we are the inversion of where the Jews were carried. That place has always been known as the land in the midst of rivers. Its heart lies between the Tigris and the Euphrates. We are the exact opposite, and God has proven that using... The difference between one side of the 100th parallel, of course, it's not anymore. Now it's closer to the 98th parallel. It's moved. God's done that for a reason, ladies and gentlemen. This is why the even the everybody knows of the plague of locusts that struck during the Dust Bowl. Nobody can explain it, ladies and gentlemen. They just disappeared at the 100th parallel. Now look. You can find massive documentation to this, especially in diaries. I spent a fantastic amount of time in the old library at the Capitol where I used to live. Up in the top floor, the fifth floor, was completely secured. Uh, you had to give your driver's license to get off the fifth floor. And I was provided, the Lord my God gave me a special key there because my niece got a job. In the secure level. So I was able to go through the diaries that had happened during the Dust Bowl. And ladies and gentlemen, they were by the millions. And these locusts just literally disappeared at the Hunter Peril. Well, why? You ask yourself why. We have a river in the midst of our land. Everybody knows it. It's the Mississippi. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Mississippi. Everybody knows it. That is the border to the 100th parallel. You can flank it left and right. That's what divides this land. And let me make sure you understand. Geologists do not understand it, even though it was discovered in the 1800s. They're like, something's wrong here. We've got the West. There's no reason why, why there's a West here. Clearly, along the 100th parallel, you have arid, you cross it, get to the Mississippi, and all of a sudden it's like a paradise. There's no rhyme and there's no reason for it, much like right where I'm at right now. Where I used to live was 2,000 feet below my present altitude, yet the barometric pressure doesn't make sense. It physically doesn't make sense. You cannot determine my altitude here using a barometric gauge as what has historically been done. Because, well, there's 2,000 feet less of atmosphere above me. The pressure must be lower here. But here, you have to be very careful about what strain of, of cattle you get. Because farmers quickly realize that they would... Uh, purchase cattle elsewhere, bring them here, and the whole herd would die because of the barometric pressure. So I have been 
everybody knows that over the course of the End Time Tribune, I've been trying to come up with a proper term for what it is I am. Because when you ask people that you're trying to, you know, e- evangelize, well, what are your thoughts about a Christian? They immediately gnash their teeth at you. Because Christians are evil. They attack you. They do this. They do that. I mean, the most horrific things have I been told about Christians, like people would show up at their mother's deathbed going through the hospitals and tell their mother that she was going to burn in hell if she wasn't baptized when she was a baby. And I was, as of late, uh, posted a comment, well, it we should properly be called the Kaleo Christians. What's a Kaleo? Well, Kaleo is the word that Delich translated into the New Testament as the root word for Karite Jew. What's a Karite Jew? A Karite Jew does what's proper. They do not follow all of this mumbo-jumbo like you can't carry keys in your pocket on the Sabbath because that's work. No, they follow the word and the word alone. They do not follow all these thousands of years of rabbis that just come up with, oh my goodness, make-believe crap that obviously creates such a huge burden. You can't do it. I mean, for the love of Pete, ladies and gentlemen, the Jews will have to go out and start their cars before sundown on Friday, so if there's an emergency, they can go to the hospital because you're not allowed to start your car on the Sabbath. It's, it's just ridiculous. So the word that Delich used, which has been certified and ratified by the two greatest biblical Hebrew experts at the time on this planet, before – let me say this again. Ladies and gentlemen, Delich comprised the New Testament before Hebrew was modernized and corrupted to become the official language of the present state of Israel. It's written in biblical Hebrew, and he did not put jots and tittles in it so everyone would know. No cantillation marks in it, no diacritics, nothing. So with that in mind, the word he translated for Karite was Kaleo. That's G2564. I have said all that to say this, that tonight Brian is revealing things that we should have kept our eye on the ball. Ladies and gentlemen… The event horizon for the Prince of Persia obtaining nuclear weapons technology, Brian come right out and told you that it was from Belgium, directly linking back to ties to that mosque in Germany, letting you know that, ladies and gentlemen, just because Iran didn't have nukes, that did not mean the Prince of Persia did not have them. The wool has thoroughly been pulled over our Eyes, and this must stop. Now, Brian made reference to bringing something up tomorrow. I have no idea where, where we're going to go. I was thinking that perhaps we should do another WI2C radio, but I don't know. And to be honest with you, ladies and gentlemen, I, I really do mean the Lord's Prayer when I pray it. 
that, that I, I, I really do not only believe it, that that's what I mean. So if it's the Lord's will for me to do something else tomorrow with Brian, we will. Or maybe Tim's and I will get on, or who knows, maybe even Derek from 1870 will give me a call, and maybe we'll jump on and do something with him. I really don't care. I just want to make sure that I accomplish God's will, whatever that is. And in this time, you need to start reorganizing your thought pattern. I know and understand that <clears throat> people's faith is actually tied to a cunningly devised fable of the rapture. That's, that's not good. That's not good. Now look, am I trying to scare you into saying, no, you're not going to be, uh, you know, translated to heaven... You're not going to be protected? No, that's never what I said. That's never what I meant. I never meant that. I meant that you don't understand what's really going to get, really going to take place. It's believable, and I'll tell you why. Because it's happened before. But we are so past the point of the event horizon known as Pentecost, people actually have zero faith that anything miraculous could happen or that anything that could arouse the Lord their God from his throne. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm here to tell you, the Lord, he is still God. And I, I've tried to say this over the years the best I could. You're not alive because you drink water. You're not. You're not alive because you breathe oxygen. You're not... Ladies and gentlemen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could not be alive if, in order to be alive, they had to breathe, breathe oxygen because they were in the middle of a firestorm that sucked all the oxygen out. They should have suffocated. Forget being burned to death. They should have suffocated, but no, that's not how it works. You are only alive because you have been given the breath of life from God's very nostrils. That's what kills you when he takes it back. Not dying of thirst or suffocating or burning to death. No, ladies and gentlemen, no. That's not when you die. You die when God takes back his breath. And until then, you don't have anything to be afraid of. And even when that does happen, don't you realize, your breath of life goes back to him. Now that should do one of two things. Either excite you, or terrify you. Because then all your crap that has deviated from the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes are going to be brought full bear upon your own shoulders, not mine. It's going to be brought on your own shoulders. And you know what? I don't care what your denomination believes about whether you have to be baptized when you're an infant or not, and that automatically makes you a Christian, that automatically makes you, uh, you know, in the particular denomination you're in, God don't give a flying rip about that because he never said that. But he will bring you to task based off what he said, what's come out of his mouth, nothing else. He don't give a flying rip what your priest or your preacher has taught you. He really don't care because he was expecting you to always know that, well, that countermands what's coming out of the Lord our God's mouth, it's irrelevant. It's like reading the funny papers. 
It's like reading cartoons or watching blockbuster movies. Ladies and gentlemen, the Prince of Persia has obtained nuclear weapons. Brian, back to you. Well, and uh, let me stroll forward in a few of those little details here. Now, as Matthew brought up, oh, yes, folks, the Prince of Persia has a much broader reach than we first realized, doesn't he? I brought up previously Abdul Abdul Qadir Khan. He was the man that was behind the nuclear weapons project. You can go out there and look him up. There's even documentaries galore out there about this infamous character. Now, the Pakistani nuclear program start date itself was in 20 January of 1972. Again, that's important. Everybody, I want you to take note of something I've discussed in times past, because even as Matthew brought up, if we did a what is to come, well, we stopped on Revelation 6. You see, folks, we haven't yet discussed the timeline I've worked on. In this 120-year pattern that I've studied, starting in 1899, you have the spin-up cycle of that first 10 years. You move into 1909. You go forward 1919. You move forward to all of a sudden you end on the first third rider, 1929, the Great Depression. As we keep rolling this cycle forward, 1979, in this threefold 40-year repetition, in 1979, in that repetition in these uh, set of isochronal events, you land on the fourth rider. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. Clearing something up quickly. Because, as Matthew kind of brought up, he went out and looked to see what some of our infamous uh, circles are saying concerning the end time events. I came across videos, across writings by people that have confused themselves into thinking that the horsemen, known as the craftsmen as well, in Zechariah, are somehow bad guys. Folks, the Lord himself sends these horsemen out, the four horns coming against Israel. Have we forgotten this? For those of you that have created this fiction or are following after this fiction. Okay, when you look Can at Zechariah... Yes, don't make me jump out of my chair like that, though, and scare the daylights out of me. Let, let me just say one point. Ladies and gentlemen, which is the rider that is magnified? I'll tell you. Let me ask you a very deep and personal question. I read it today that the angel of death, okay, not that that's my terminology, that's theirs. He's a bad guy. The bad guy uh, actually went and killed all the Egyptian firstborn. He was bad. Really? That's what got the children of Israel free. And just so you know, that's why the fourth rider is expanded upon. What follows him? Ladies and gentlemen, how could the riders be bad? 
anyway, I, I just needed to say that because you said it, and I was tempted to say it before. But ladies and gentlemen, you better watch what you say. You better not be slandering angelic authorities, okay? Please don't do that. God gets very mad when you do that. Brian, back to you. Sorry for the interruption. Well, that last point you just brought up, I was going to state as well. Railing accusations. Folks, some of you that have gotten caught up out there in the midst of, they have all these infamous spiritual warfare teachings, and they seem to think that somehow Satan is omnipotent, omnipresent, can be a billion places at once, seems to be allowed to do whatever it is that he wants to whenever, but look. Well, you know, Brian, let me just say something, okay? Very personal, okay, for the whole world to hear. You came to my house, correct? Right? Yes. You and Tiana spent an extended stay at my house, and you marveled after me. I said, really? You you downloaded an app that can detect magnetic? Well, yeah. I took you exactly to where those that have been given charge over me were standing, didn't I? When I said, watch, Brian, the magnetic field will... You're like, well, how do you know that? I can't see them. Really? Ladies and gentlemen, they're not God. They can't be everywhere at once. I don't know why you think they are. They are only called God's messengers because they do whatever it is that he tells them to do. Kind of like, I don't know, you're supposed to be. Sorry, Brian. Back to you. Well, that is the entirety of the key critical point. Folks, you should have known from the book of Job already that the accuser of the brethren, Satan, has to have permission. The book of Job made that very clear. I've had it thrown back at me. Well, he roars about like a lion seeking whom it is that he may destroy. My response back was, have you read the book of Job? Okay, it states emphatically he is the accuser of the brethren day and night before the throne. There was some infamous book that came out years back and then was made into a movie about this alleged kid that went to heaven. And you see, before my wife is allowed to watch a movie, I have to filter it first because I don't want nonsense coming into her head. So I shot through that book at lightning speed. I found the one spot where I knew the kid was lying and the father that actually wrote the book where he stated that Satan's not allowed to do the very thing that the Bible tells us. That, therefore, makes it fiction, everybody. Oh, well, yeah, my well, wife Brian. wasn't allowed to watch that movie. Oh, Brian, here we go again. Ladies and gentlemen, of course he seeks you. He might be standing right, right next to you. Let me bring it up again. Okay. You call this entity the angel of death, right? That did the final plague, right? Ladies and gentlemen, why didn't he kill the Hebrew children? Oh, for Pete's sakes. Please listen to what Brian's telling you. Of course, he's, he might be standing right next to you, but you're untouchable unless the Lord your God says so. Sorry, Brian. Uh, boy, I'm really interrupting you bad tonight. Sorry about that. Well, I mean, the unfortunate state in... This modern-day, uh, some titles have been given to it, churchianity, things that are being taught. Unfortunately, we have to sit here and 
bring up a factor like this, which, folks, the Bible teaches you something completely contradictory to what these people are stating. More or less, to state that properly, they are contradicting what the Bible says. Spend more time in the Bible as opposed to running around and pushing play on these stupid YouTube videos or streaming into your house these people that are making up absolute nonsense. The amount of money that is being funneled into fictional make-believe land right now is absolutely overwhelming. Get your heads out of the nonsense, open up your Bible, and see what God's holy word says. Leave this nonsense out of the equation. These people are completely misleading you and deceiving you. It's that simple. It is that very simple. Now, to get off of that and get back to where I was going. As I stated, 1979, that revolution fell on the fourth rider at that stage. Zechariah explains to you that those chariots with those riders at that time, they're going out in different directions. It's important to pay attention to what directions the craftsmen go at that time. It's important to look at Daniel 8 and understand that battle of Uli that's going to play out in the future. It's important to look at where the ram moves. Okay, you are given very specific pieces of information where you should be able to sit down and understand these things without hesitation. Now, to move forward. Now, everybody, you need to realize as this progression started itself again, we had the 2008 stock market crash that led to the major recession that played out afterwards. But, you know, like I said, that next repetition falls on 2009. But according to whose calendar? Oh, yes. Take note of this. The stock market crash of 2008 occurred on September 29 of 2008. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that 2008? Oh, no. Whose calendar? Rosh Hashanah of 2008 began in the evening of Monday, September 29th. Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year. Oh, you mean we're not supposed to be looking at the Gregorian calendar? Everybody, you should have seen this coming. Now you can understand why I'm pointing out that events between 1978 and 1979. If we go according to our calendar, we might be missing some key critical factors. Like, how is it that that crash happened at the head of the year? Oh, because that's where I run my calculations from. I don't use... The Gregorian calendar. I don't use these very calendars. No. My calculation for Alexander's death, running it forward 2,300 years, I used the Hebrew calendar. This marker falling where it did for the 2008 stock market crash that led to the recession fell at the head of the year. It's amazing what happens when you take God for what he says. And you begin to marvel after it. And you begin to look at things through in different ways. See things through a lens that you didn't see it before. Because look, folks, this happens to me and Matthew on a continual basis. Day after day after day. Because we continue learning things that we had no idea about. 
This, this includes what I discovered last week concerning Ophir. Because when you bring this Pakistan situation with Ophir into the equation, you understand that the Persian people were in Pakistan, Afghanistan. They had their beginning startings up in Tajikistan before they went down there. Later on in the Achaemenid Empire, when the longer horn, Persia, which came up, along with the Medes, the secondary horn, when you understand the extent of the empire that they ruled, all of a sudden, all of these events from 1979 and forward suddenly make sense. And as I have discussed with Matthew in the background, I keep getting pulled back to 1979. I cannot escape it. Okay, many of us that were brought up during this time frame, during September 11th, and witnessed the events play out that day, know how much of a life-changing event this was, at least for some. Unfortunately, the reports, for instance, with people's church attendance. That weekend, the churches were overfilling. The next weekend, they all forgot and just went about their own business. That's what has been going on in America for a while, but that's not the point here. We know full well at that stage that many conspiracies started to float around out there. And, of course, I got pulled into all that garbage as well for years on end. But then I matured and I grew up and I decided I'm going to sit down and look at this data again. I'm going to knock this conspiratorial nonsense away. I'm going to look at the facts on the ground. It's when you look at the facts on the ground that suddenly you start to see everything you're supposed to see. Now, yes, I have a very large distrust of this government as we speak because of all these things that have played out. The 2003 invasion of Iraq was not justifiable by any stretch of the imagination. There was no weapons of mass destruction that were found when they invaded there. The entire pretext was made up from nonsense. So, of course, this begins to make you look at everything differently. But as time has progressed, we have gotten vast amount of historical data that is coming forward with all of the events that played out starting from 79 and moving forward because of declassified files. Now, folks, I go through these interviews. I can read body language. There's many of these people that are working in these varied intelligence communities, varied military groupings going forward. Okay, folks, just because they're working for these groups doesn't make them bad people. No. And you can tell that a lot of these people working in these fields are being honest with the material they're bringing forward from their own eyewitness testimony. Okay, folks, I have long since gotten fed up with the conspiracy crowd because they're just, they've wrapped all this stuff into prophecy. I mean, you should have seen an article that came out earlier this week in Salon. This guy nailed it on the head. This is all these people are talking about in eschatological circles now. The new world order. They can't even wrap their minds around what that means. Because the United States is doing exactly what they stated they were going to do. Now they're ruling with an absolute hegemony over the entire world. And that's what all these moves that this administration have done. But it's also given motivation for the Ten Kings to burn her. Because I have spoken about the fact, once you realize that Ezekiel 38 and 39 gives you the details to unlocking the Ten Kings, 
when I've done extensive work to show that Eastern Europe, Western Europe, makes up a vast quantity of those groups, not to even mention Persia, Togarma, which is the Turkish people, not necessarily modern-day Turkey, because modern-day Turkey is made up of a very large population of people. But nonetheless, you have Turkish people there. When you realize who these groups are and you look at the events that have played out, when you look at what happened with the Iranian nuclear deal, all of the European nations are scrambling now because if they don't get something set straight, they're going to have massive economic sanctions that are going to affect them now with their dealings. They've set in motion with Iran, not to even mention stuff going backwards, Germany with Russia, for instance, Balkan groups with Russia. Okay, now we have motivation. That's what we got to go back around to these events from 1979 and forward. And folks, there's undeniable aspects of things that have been happening with Iran since 1979. Okay, and sometimes we get our blinders put on because at times, you see, there's streams of propaganda that come out to confuse people that, yes, we have streams, even in America, of their own agendas. But when you have ghosts, when you have shadow wars taking place, folks, you need to realize that some of this propaganda has been put out there by these very key players themselves. Like, for instance, does everybody remember the infamous, uh, well, that couldn't have been Osama bin Laden that was killed in that raid at the time of... uh, Obama's administration because he had kidney problems and was on dialysis. Folks, do you realize that it was Osama bin Laden himself that put that out there? And the conspiracists ate it for dinner. There's a terminology that is used by the intelligence community. Now, I am not calling these people this. I'm just using their terminology to illustrate what this is. They refer to these people as useful idiots because they can drop things out there and there are certain people that will run with it and spread these rumors. When you have all of these factors, all of these groups with their own agendas, these countries with their own agendas, with their own goals, this creates a massive web of confusion and trying to understand who's doing what. But there are undeniable things that have happened since that 1979 revolution, things that we can chart knowing full well they've been playing out for years. Now, some are out there in the certain persuasions are going to try to convince you that Iran doesn't do anything wrong. No. We know unequivocally that they've had connections with Hezbollah, for instance. We know unequivocally that they have completely, for the most part, swept into Iraq and filled that vacuum. Right now, we just had an election that is going to be causing all kinds of contention to come. You had a Shiite cleric that has been speaking against Iran, at least in that he rose up from a... He had a group during the Iraqi war that was called the Army of Mahdi. If you know anything about Imam al-Mahdi, I brought it up earlier, you should be having your ears perk up. But... It stated he's railed against Iran, even though he was leading groups that were fighting against the Americans during the Iraqi war, and a great deal of Americans were killed in the midst of those conflicts. Yet other streams within the Shiite group that also got major people into power. You've got fighting going on 
with the Kurdish people right now, because obviously you have groups that are tied in with the Shiite, but not to even mention there is suspected election fraud that went on there. But never mind the fact that their election played out like the United States elections. Only 40% of the people even bothered to show up because they know the whole system is rigged against them. So they didn't even bother to show up. We just saw this happen here as well. <clears throat> as I stated, there are certain things that we know are undeniable. Iran has been up to no good behind the scenes for quite some time. Hezbollah, on top of it, I know this full well from the works of James Loftus, the person that worked with the Justice Department underneath Jimmy Carter, who was given the highest security clearance to get to the bottom of why in the world there were all these Nazi war criminals all over the place in the United States. Through his book about the war on the Jews, he goes into a lot of these details that were taking place at the time of Hezbollah. They were running narcotics. There was groups, there were certain narcotic dealers on top of it that were running this stuff to keep their organizations going that even tied into the original, the last uh, leader of Syria, that Assad. Assad had a lot of control over Hezbollah during that time frame as well. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because, folks, since this time, as time has progressed, Hezbollah has moved groupings into Argentina and all throughout the South American continent. There's a large grouping of Islamic people in Argentina now. Now, everybody, we've talked about the connections between Nazi Germany and those war criminals and Argentina before as well. I just, at the beginning of the show, I explained to everybody on top of it that there were groupings within these Nazi war criminals that had escaped that had converted to Islam. You have this stream of history that keeps connecting to itself. But now we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have got groupings that went up into Argentina. The last Venezuela leader, for instance, that was overthrown by this new leader that has caused all kinds of contention. Now OPEC is having problems due to that and everything else. Well, that previous leader on top of it was working with Hezbollah. Okay, on top of it, you take in the other streams. You start bringing this through Pakistan, Afghanistan. You go up into Iraq. Okay, we know full well from all kinds of documentation that Iran has been behind the scenes working with Al-Qaeda, working with Taliban, working with many of these groupings, as we've seen with many of these dealings going on like I brought up before. You have Sunni groups that are now aligning themselves, but they have been for since 79. Sunni groups that have been aligning themselves with Iran. Okay, so for the one stream of you folks out there that are convinced that Iran is not doing anything, give me a break. This is where you need to get down and look at the actual historical documentation. There have been things going on. These things are undeniable. When we have new reports that are just coming out in March that tie things back to even on top of it with the Taliban connecting in with Iranian groups that three Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps were killed in a Taliban att ambush and attack that happened last October. But then they traced it out when they took out the last major leader of Taliban as he strolled into Pakistan. Well, guess what? More things came to the forefront about his connections with Iran. Folks, 
This is getting serious. This is getting serious like nobody can seem to understand. Not to even mention, in the last week, as the embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem by the United States, the leader of Al-Qaeda now, he called for jihad on the United States. I would take pause with that, folks. You should be concerned. But I haven't really seen that come up in the news cycle hardly at all since that comment was made. Now, as we rolled things forward, as things happened with ISIS, now somebody had asked this question if I was referring to a certain person that was from Jordan on the uh, Facebook page for Untime Tribune Media, and I can give clarity to that. No, the person in Iraq now was not who I was referring to. The original leader, he was actually known as the Iraqi branch of Al-Qaeda that came in back during the original Iraqi war. And his name, and this is uh, the guy who was the original founder of ISIS. Al-Baghdadi was phase two. His name is Abu Musab al-Zakari. That's the founder. Where was he from, everybody? He was from Jordan. Now let me read this paragraph just from this little article. The terror quasi-state that is variously called Islamic State, ISIS, or ISIL, or Daesh, was founded by a bloodthirsty religious zealot named Abu Musab al-Zakari in 2004. The native Jordanian moved to Iraq, along with thousands of other insurgent volunteers, to fight the American and British forces that had invaded the country in 2003. Folks, this is a long, extensive history. We covered it before. I've gone through several books on the Islamic State. They were tied in with Al-Qaeda. They broke away from Al-Qaeda because they went over the top. They didn't agree with what they were doing, but certain groups within Al-Qaeda joined in. Jordan, sons of Lot, that's the original Islamic State founder. You take it backwards on top of it. Al-Zakari had dealings with Iran as well. We're down to the last 90 seconds. I'm going to hand this over to Matthew quickly. For the last 90 seconds. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope your eyes have been a little more widened open. Everything that Brian just talked about, the keys to the kingdom of Persia, is quite complicated, really, to American eyes. But if you're there on the ground, oh, it makes perfect sense. I'm not sure what we're going to do tomorrow, but until then, ladies and gentlemen, God bless. Godspeed. Brian? Thanks for joining us, folks. God bless.